Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. If you would like a one-on-one conversation to help you get clear on what you want in life and what's in your way of getting there, visit theandygrant.com slash talk and book a no-obligation, no-cost appointment. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello, 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 and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. Thank you for joining this week's episode. You know, this show was created over four years ago now as part of my own asking of what does it mean to be a man? And I asked that often because growing up, I did not think I was a man. I didn't, I didn't feel like a man. And it was because I was looking at these older, very limited notions of what masculinity meant. So why explore this stuff at all? You know, the concept of the concept and the goal of, of knowing thyself goes back to ancient Greece. And, you know, to, to me, it means that we are truly hardwired to ask questions, to be curious, to want to understand ourselves, who we are, what we are, and all that wonderful stuff. So there's certainly a role for men in understanding masculinity. Um, is there a role for women too? My guest today thinks so. <laughs> she is an explorer of intersectional masculinity. She's a Soviet-born, LA-based, award-winning storyteller and global speaker, Vika Victoria. After retiring, after retiring as a top ad sales executive in New York City, Vika embarked on a 28-month solo backpacking expedition. Her curiosity led her to curate a global men's dinner salon, gathering men from Sydney to Berlin for a philosophical night of conversation on contemporary manhood. Vika has written for Vice and A+, been interviewed in Time, The Dr. Oz Show, and won a New York City Moth Story Slam. Vika currently trains men and teams on the power of story, while also supporting men in living their legacy. Welcome to Real Men Feel, Vika. Hello, so happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. And first off, I love your hair. (laughs) (laughs) I love your spirit. (laughs) (laughs) There's not enough... uh, I mean, it, I mean, the goals, you know, diversity and multicultural, and I just love, I love when that shows up in hair, you know, good, good Smurf hair. <laughs> I like to say to my niece and nephew, I was born this way and they believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, good. That, that, I, I love that naivete that uh, mm-hmm. we can believe and trust each other. That'd be great. So, oh, first of all, I want to, I want to ask what you mean by intersectional masculinity, because that's kind of a big word. And it sounds like sex in the middle of it. So before people like kind of make their own assumptions, like what does that mean to you? Yeah. So it, it gives space for nuance. We can't assume that all masculinity is the same because there's a matrix of influences and factors that affect masculinity, ranging from education to race to culture to socioeconomic background um, to family to societal conditioning. So intersectional masculinity is my way of saying there is no one way. There's a multitude of ways. And the exploration of this multitude is actually what provides the most fascinating insights because growing up in Asian culture gives you a totally different perception of what it means to be a man than in Muslim culture or black culture or immigrant Ukrainian culture like I grew up in. Um, And so as I've been traveling the world and talking to men almost every day in every way, it's become so clear that just saying masculinity isn't enough. 
why I, I understand traveling. I love to travel, but why are you talking to men every day? Why, why is this a subject matter that interests you at all? Yeah, it's a really good question. I just finished writing this as a chapter of my book and the title was, why do I care about men? And I, I think it's because we do what we love, what we're fascinated by and what we've been hurt by, right? We've, we've got to make sense of our pain. And to begin, my father was my first best friend. Uh, since I was a little girl, I was his mini me. And that gave me this deep understanding that every man has the potential to be my best friend. So I grew up with his motley crew of Russian guy friends on Sunday fishing trips. And because I was a tomboy, um, I was kind of relegated to the role of little sister. And I really enjoyed that role because that meant that I got to be an advisor to my guy friends growing up. And, you know, as I advanced, I was a competitive ballroom dancer uh, as a kid. And so for years, I, I was really understanding what it was like on the guy side to grow up together side by side. And then in college, I tutored the athletes. And that gave me a totally different understanding of masculinity at that level. Um, and then as I went backpacking, I was exposed to men from all different walks of life. And ultimately, I got into advertising. And that brought in a new way of seeing men in the traditional kind of corporate America lens. So I've, I've always cared about men. Um, it began with my father and this project really began with the end of my grandfather. So when my grandfather died in that deep pain and grief and depression, I got this feeling that I can't stop learning from men. Because if my grandpa was the greatest man that I ever knew, and my dad is no longer present and hadn't been for a decade at that point, how could I keep learning from wise men in my life? And so I started gathering men in dinners in every city where I was speaking at, cooking a five-course meal, and just asking the exact question that you started with, which is, what does it mean to be a man today? So tell me more about the, because you described that these are underground dinners, so it makes them like they're secret, they're dangerous. How, like, how, yeah, how, how do those unfold? Secret passcode. Yeah. <laughs> you have to wear all black. <laughs> they are, they're underground um, only because I can't fit a hundred people into the room and you lose that intimacy. So they are men that I have found really embody contemporary manhood and espouse all the values and walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, in cities where I went, where I didn't know anyone, I would lean on social media and ask who are the men you most love and revere in Sydney and Melbourne. And so it was cool because it was always like one degree of connection. Um, so they're underground because they are secretive. Uh, there's three rules that I give for each dinner. And one of them is that, you know, this is an NDA style container that while we agree to be visiting professors in each other's lives and these men have never met each other before. They're all strangers. So I am creating a psychologically safe space where we get to be visiting professors in each other's lives. And from the very first one, I recorded it because I had, a, I had this just gut instinct that one day this will be a book, which was wild because I started it three years ago before the Me, Me Too movement. Um, but I just knew that if these dinners can carry the same depth and wisdom and trust that I can have one-on-one -on -one with my guy friends, 
then maybe there's something really powerful here because what I've noticed is that our generation is really lacking two things, that passage from boyhood to manhood. And they're mentioned in King Warrior, Magician Lover. It's rite of passage and wisdom from tribe elder. And so I ask about rites of passage in every dinner. And I believe that the wisdom from the tribe elder is being shared simply in the story. You know, like I I don't believe in lecturing. I believe in the power of story. So as we share stories, the wisdom is just kind of woven through the story. And it's, it's very Gestaltian, but people can take what they need from the stories of the men. So you know, or at least have a friend in common with each man, but they don't know each other at all. They come together. Yeah. So they, they don't know each other at all. Mm. So they are either my personal friends that I have gathered and watched over the years, how they relate to their partners, how they uh, lead in business, how they just show up in the world. And I've been really moved by them and I want to honor them because I know that takes a lot of effort to not succumb to the familial, cultural, and societal conditioning. And I'm fascinated by how they did that. And so these dinners are really a celebration of the best men in my life. Hmm, Cool. And at this point, you're not traveling the world speaking about masculinity. This is really a a side gig. Yeah, this is a side gig. Yeah. My, my first foray was really, I was an ad exec. And then one of my clients told me, you should do this thing called the moth. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to get on stage and tell a story in front of strangers. And then I did, and I ended up winning a moth and someone found me on YouTube and asked me to speak at a conference. And at this point I had been so burnt out from my first career. I did not want a job. I just wanted my freedom. I'd saved up for seven years so that I could leave for a long time. And so speaking became something that wasn't obligatory. It was just from a place of joy. So the thing that I started speaking about was called hacking human connection. And, and this is a good exercise for anyone listening. And Andy, I'm curious for you. If someone says, hey, uh, you've got about half an hour to teach the thing that comes most natural to you, go break it down into a five-step process. That's what I did. I, I had never understood uh, that speaking could be a career. And the only thing that I felt I had any authority to talk about was the thing that made me really successful in business, human connection. And I would talk to strangers since I was a kid. My mom always made fun of me. Um, And so I started sharing those frameworks. And in that process, I got to speak at a lot of really cool conferences. Um, And so the men's work wasn't even men's work to me. It was, it was my own catharsis. I love how you said that you started this podcast for you. And I, I actually think that's how some of the most powerful movements begin in the world. We, we try to make sense of our pain, that our pain has to mean something. And in the absence of my father's uh, presence, he walked out a decade before. And in the sudden death of the most important man in my life, I was drowning in grief and a deep depression followed. And the only way that I could honor my grandpa was to bring together men that reminded me of him. Um, and, and from there, men started coming to me asking, would you be my coach? And the first time it happened, I was like, oh God, no, <laughs> like I, that, I just got an allergic reaction. I hate that word. I said, listen, I used to be a, a financial ad- advisor intern at Smith Barney. If people are willing 
to spend money to learn how to manage their wealth portfolio, why is nobody teaching them how to manage their relational wealth, right? The longest running study Harvard ever did, 700 participants over 75 years found that the single greatest factor contributing to our happiness is the quality of our relationships. And I'm, you know, that first time that a man approached me and asked me to guide him into the unknown territory of becoming um, has now turned into half my consultancy. And just two days ago, I helped this man write his wedding vows. And it was such a fulfilling experience, more fulfilling than closing any multi-million dollar media deal. And so when you open and you say, is there space for women in the room of men's work? To me, absolutely. It's, we are relational creatures. You are a man in relation to every woman, mother, um, child, partner in your life. And so to have something outside the homogenous perspective of your own sex is so critical to real evolution. So your love of your grandfather, your respect of your father and his friends created this curiosity, this love, this realizing you could be comforted and learn and get wisdom from men. But during your travels, I have you only met those type of men? Oh, no. Yeah, okay. I've been <laughs> on the receiving end of, and I think that's why, because I speak from experience. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of men of low integrity. And like so many women, unfortunately, I have experienced emotional, sexual, um, and physical assault from men. And so my highest contribution to society is to ensure that men are loving to themselves so that they are loving to others. Because I know what happens when they're harmful to themselves and they're harmful to others. Beautiful, beautiful. And I'm glad you're saying that because... Uh, this happens, men, women, every type of person, whatever you're into, whatever you identify as, there's a tendency for people to have a bad experience and then just say, they're all like that. Oh yeah. And so, yeah. So I'm glad that you have, you've had, maybe it's because you had the good experience first. So you knew that they're out there. Whereas if people that are are brought up with a really painful, distorted version of masculinity, do they, uh, you know, I don't know, are they prone to only see that as they go into the world? But yeah, I think it has a lot to do with your own maturity and compassion. There was definitely a period of time in my 20s where I got heartbroken by the first guy I ever dated. And I became what my girlfriends say, a man eater for the rest of college. And I was, I was awful. And I genuinely look back and feel terrible for, for the way that I behaved because I was that person that was like, well, if he's an asshole, all men are assholes and I'm going to treat them accordingly. And it got me nowhere. Um, and so at a certain point, what, what really shifted that narrative for me was having phenomenal friendships with men who were the antithesis of everything I said. And they would call me out. They'd be like, hey, you can't say all guys are assholes. I'm right here. Yeah. So it's an education of understanding that pain is the exception, not the rule. And it's on you to recognize, A, how was that person hurting that made them hurt you? And B, what kind of behavior were you either enabling or putting up with where you didn't love yourself enough to get out of a bad situation. 
cool, cool. Um, my own backstory, oh, uh, lots of lots of depression, lots of suicide attempts. Um, and, and it wasn't until that I began to love myself that anything could shift. And but for the longest time, if you had told me that, like, fuck you, that's what kind of what kind of gay shit is you telling you? Like, love my what does that even mean? So I, I I love that it's showing up like in context, and and you're seeing the, the truth of that. And that's why I hope you know if if one guy's listening and hears you got to love yourself and just wants to tune out, like that's cool. Like because I had had to hear it multiple times before I was willing to like, is there something there? What does that really mean? And find out what it means. So uh, you know, I'm glad that you're mentioning it. But what I I don't even know why I said all that, but what I wanted to ask, you, you said looking back that that man-eater period, you, you regretted it. It wasn't good. But in, in the moment, did it, did it feel right or did it feel forced even then? Can, any awareness of that? It felt like vindication. It felt like I finally got to control the narrative that no man was ever going to hurt me or, or um, disrupt. I call it a happiness homeostasis. So homeostasis is a a scientific term for basically keeping the balance. So our temperature is the homeostasis of our body. It's always at the same. So I felt like if I didn't let any man in, nobody could betray me, cheat on me, hurt me ever again. And the problem with that was I wasn't operating from my heart. I was, it was all head games. It was power dynamics and it was really inauthentic and insincere. And there were men that poor things like, did not deserve that and and really tried to break through those barriers and the kinder that they were to me the meaner I was back um and so I'm really grateful that that period happened because now when I I do the work that I do I've learned so much about how deeply men feel and people ask me like you know well what are some of the most interesting takeaways you've learned over the last four years doing this and honestly it's like we all want the same thing. And men experience the entire spectrum of feelings as much as women. And there's deep nuances with each sex. But what I will say is I think of it like a metaphor, like we're all born with a 24 pack of watercolor paints. And over the course of childhood, there are a few key people, usually an athletics coach or a really tough parent or a bully that says to a young boy, you run like a girl, don't be a pussy. And suddenly the red disappears and the blue disappears. And by the time that they hit middle school or high school, they're working with four colors out of 24 because all of that vibrance of expression was robbed of them. And that's, to me, the greatest tragedy. And so really, it's, it's helping men come back into their fullest expression. And when I say that, it's, we all feel we've just, for men, become masters of suppression. So I try to get men to describe how it feels in the body. Um, there's a fantastic book called The Body Keeps Score by a psychologist, Bessel van der Kolk. I saw him at Esalen and, and he's just phenomenal. But if, if men are having a hard time expressing, it's because there's a desensitization that has happened, that has been repeated as a pattern over time. And the way that the brain works, neurologically speaking, is that patterns become grooves in the brain. So we're more wired for familiarity than for what's good for us. Yeah. And it's self-awareness is the start of all of it. And that's why I love that you're doing this podcast because you're 
bringing to life all of these themes. Yeah. I mean, you're repeating so many things that, that come up and, and that, that I um, talk to with, with my clients. Um, Cause though you hate the word, you know, I think you like it now, but, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a coach as well. And you know, that whole notion of falling into a rut. Yeah. It's, it's the ruts in our brain and it can take conscious effort to think in a new way because you have to get up out of that rut and make a new better rut, you know, one that does serve you and feels good. But you know, you, you mentioned, you know, how you were acting. It's, it's like you took the most distorted sense of masculinity and, and tried to be it that, that super aggression as a defense, like, cause mm-hmm. Truly down to the core of it, men are so afraid of getting hurt, oh, yeah. of, of seeming weak. That, that's why that's the, the toughest, most macho person is just got this big wall all around the heart so they don't ever risk being hurt. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I love that you can come in and, and be in this space and share your experiences all around. And you do. You've, you've, you've lived the full range of emotions that all humans are allowed to have, but men have been told, nope, 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 down here. And, and you can speak to it all. So... I think that that I think that's why you connect so well with men and, and men can come to you. You're not you're not just some I don't know, some breeze of femininity that just soft and frail <laughs> and, you know, floating above it all somehow. Yeah. Certainly you're very intuitive. No, I you know, my guy friends have told me and maybe this is because my my guy friends were some of my closest friends, they're like, you think like a man. Hmm. Um And I'm really able to compartmentalize in ways that have been really unhealthy. And then I think my, my, when my dad left, I recognized that I now had to become the man that I no longer had. And so I booked a one-way ticket to Vietnam because I figured that was better than being depressed and, you know, being a 21 year old sitting through an economic recession And I went backpacking through Southeast Asia alone for those six months. And I volunteered at orphanages and and just made friends with lots of different people from different cultures and got perspective. And by the time that I moved to New York and became an ad exec, it was very clear that we had no father to provide for my mom and little sister. So it was really on me and my big sister. And my big sister was crushing it in ad sales. And she said to me, you know, like, your personality was made for this. My clients love you because I was regaling them with stories from Cambodia. And so I got into, I got into advertising because I knew I needed to take care of my family and being financially successful, especially as an immigrant, it's one of the greatest wounds that we carry. So when I did see my father three years ago after an eight year absence, the thing that I'm most proud that I actually got to say to his face through a lot of tears was thank you for leaving because I never would have realized the power I had inside myself, the businesswoman that I became, the money that I made, all of my success was driven by a bone deep need. And so when, when I think about why I I connect with men or why they connect with me, it's because all the wounds of the father have, have given me a lot of insight and lived experience so that I can be super compassionate when men talk about their identity connected to their financial ability to provide, when men talk about issues of self-worthiness, when men talk about not enoughness. Um, I've got a lot of insight there. And you've done something that 
too few Americans do, which is be well-traveled and, and go places. And, and it, it forces you to realize, or at least I should, it forced me to realize, we'll see if it's true for you, that, that all your limited definitions of people and types of people are just, it's, it's false. Like real life is so much more flexible than our mental version of it at all. Right. And I, I believe that, you know, being well-traveled, visiting other cultures, it, that, that's the cure for racism, sex, and like every, every ism can be dissolved by, you know, experiencing those people. Yeah, so, you said it beautifully. Exactly. Exactly. Because, because you see the humanity of it all. You see that every single person, I think there's three core things that every human being needs to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel their voice matters. So when you're backpacking and you're making friends with someone, you don't know their religion, their background or anything. You just connect to them as a human and all of that becomes secondary. Cool. Um, way back in describing the underground dinners, discussing, disgusting, ooh, discussing masculinity, <laughs> you, you, you mentioned that you talk about some of the values of contemporary manhood. Could, could you expand on some of what you see are the values, what those conversations turned up as values? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a data nerd. I love to see patterns emerge. And so as I've been re-listening to this for the book I'm writing, whether it was Tel Aviv or Berlin or Sydney, Melbourne or the States, there are certain values that are coming to the surface that universally all men value it seems that some of those values have a great deal to do with integrity. Integrity of, of your word and of your actions. Integrity also creates trust. Trust builds relationships. An integrous man has the esteem and the respect of his community. Um, so integrity is one of the most important values that I'm noticing um, being celebrated in contemporary manhood. I'd say um, the next would be responsibility, and that's both sovereign responsibility of self and the responsibility to leave the world better than how you found it. So how are you using your gifts and talents to be in service to something bigger than yourself? And then I, I think the third value that kind of is surprising me um, is, is the value to reimagine power and really examine what success means because the patriarchy or the cultural narratives of these men has led them down a path that hasn't always been fulfilling, but they've checked off all the boxes along the way. So there's gotta be something that's off. And the something that's off is that our traditional notions of power are actually destroying men. And so if we can reimagine what power looks like, then success looks completely different than our actions are going to stem from a truer place. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with hierarchy, tribalism, um, acceptance, survival. Um, you know, in the way of men, I read that a man's highest desire is to be accepted in his small tribe of men, even before being accepted by his partner, because that goes back to, you know, caveman days where your survival as a human being depended on your ability to be accepted and thrive in a small hunting tribe of men. So all of this is very deeply wired, but what excites me is that 
for the first time, we're aware that there is another option. You're not just stuck. And conversations like this are becoming normal. Like you started your podcast four years ago and I'm sure you're visionary, right? People probably thought, why are you doing this? And now I imagine it's much easier for you to talk about what you do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And yeah, I mean, when it started, it was just, it was me and a friend talking and then someone said, can I be a guest? I was like, people want to be guests. And now I have a list of, you know, dozens and dozens of people waiting to be guests. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wild, but so much of what you said, like it, it's my experiences, my experience for myself as, as a man and, and the, the men that come to me as clients, all these guys, again, they check the boxes. They've done everything that they were supposed to do and they just feel empty. There's just no meaning behind doing things because you think you're supposed to, right? Just, you know, filling all the pieces in that make the man box. And then you realize, well, I'm more than that. This hasn't addressed anything that I, I feel curious about or drawn to or passionate about. And that, that's missing from so many things. And um, responsibility, a, another word you brought up, I used to fear responsibility. I thought being responsible, I thought that I took it to be synonymous with blame, mm. but it, but it's not. It's like we, we, no one can change their life until they take responsibility for it. Yeah. So it's great to hear that that's your experience. And yeah, and more people are becoming aware of that. And, and again, you mentioned awareness too. Like in, until you're aware of something, you can't do anything about it. So yeah. to be aware that you're not taking responsibility or to be aware that you're, you're not keeping your word, to be aware that you're you know, lying to yourself and others, to become aware that you've, you know, you, you can't even comprehend loving yourself because you, you judge and berate yourself so much. Like if that's where you are, like at least take a moment and go, yay, I'm aware of it. Like, cause that's a step, right? And, exactly. and you're not, you're not completely unconscious, right? It, it takes a little bit of awareness to be uh, dissatisfied. Yeah. And, and that, that often has to be the first step before the next better feeling step can happen. Exactly. Exactly. Like, You've got to get sick and tired of being sick and tired of yourself. And in that breakdown will come a breakthrough. Uh, Maya Angelou, one of my favorite quotes of hers is, when you know better, you do better. And I really believe that. I think so much of the pain within men and between the sexes is because we're just ignorantly unaware of how much damage we're creating. And that's why communication is one of the things that I teach the most because if we don't know how to have those internal dialogues, we certainly won't be able to have compassionate, clear dialogues at work or at home. So, so let's, let's jump to that. So you're so much of what you're about and what you teach is storytelling. So how does storytelling, how, let me tell a better story. How (laughs) does storytelling help uh, and, and serve a role in someone's growth and healing? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's everything, right? We have evolved from the beginning of time to think in story, to understand in story. We synthesize information as a series of stories. So the neuroscience is really quite compelling. We can go, I read three weeks without food, three days without water, but only 35 seconds without creating a narrative. And so somebody does something to you at work and all of a sudden you've got that story. They did that on purpose. I can't believe they're not being a team player. Um, Man, I'm going to have to do all the work. And you are starting this avalanche of stories. And so we have to become very conscious of the stories that we believe to be true, because then those stories become kind of the foundation of the house. And 
those stories become the ones that we communicate to the world, whether we want to or not. So, um, you know, there's the personal storytelling, which is the internal core. What is the story you believe to be true about yourself? And when I start working with someone, I, I like to kind of create this chronological map of their life so that they can actually see and connect the dots in real time. And then there's the communal story, which is inside of your community, how do people perceive you? And is there synergy? I think of it like a Venn diagram. Is there an overlap between the story you tell yourself and the story others believe to be true about you? And um, one of the exercises that I do with my students is I call it a 360 degree feedback. And I create um, about 20 psychologically driven questions that we both work on and they go out to a specific number of people in their community. And then I anonymize it and I put it together in a report and we go through it one by one. And I cannot tell you how many men have cried hearing the stories reflected back to them from their closest family and friends because we only get that kind of reflection as a eulogy. So imagine if you got to hear that the story you believe to be true about yourself is actually the story in the world. And if it's not, there's your opportunity for growth. Awesome. So you have a strong and potent role in men's work as as a leader, a guide, a speaker, uh, a stirrer upper things. (laughs) Um, do, do all women have a role? Like, are you, are you this unique, you know, unique snowflake that only, you know, the only feminine wiles that can be the man eater in all of this? Or, you know, do, do all women have a role in, in helping men? I, I think all women have a role. It's, it's, do all women want to step up to that role? It's um, taken me probably three years to summon the courage to go public with my work. It was all word of mouth. Uh, This is one of my first interviews that I'm actually speaking about it because with anything that is different, people will be threatened. They will discredit. And so you have to believe that you have a role beyond what any critic could tear you down as. And what I think women's role is to call men forward. Um, my best friend the other day asked, you know, what are you, what are you learning men really value? What do they need? And I said, men need to feel competent and they also crave nurture and encouragement, not just from men, but especially from women. And so if you are consistently, uh, making a man feel incompetent and robbing him of nurture, that's just a recipe for disaster. So, What men fear above all else I've learned is either rejection or incompetence. And I think the role of a woman is to make both of those feel like an experiment. Like, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. We know that we must innovate to succeed. And yet failure is this big, dark, scary thing that nobody ever wants to admit happens. But in order for success to happen, failure must. So I think the role of women is to recognize the paralyzing fear of incompetence, a fear of rejection, and to guide them into a space of wisdom and insight so that they feel confident that they can go through this journey and not lose their sense of self, but actually be forged in the fire. So 
that answer and so much of, of this whole conversation is full of men feeling. So yes. what, what are some of the stories that men have been told for generations that say, don't feel, that feeling is somehow bad? I, I think the biggest story that harms women and men is that men have been told that anything feminine becomes the enemy. So feelings are traditionally associated with uh, feminine quality. So crying, showing um, emotion, being moved publicly by something, it's all weakness. I think that is the greatest story that wounds men because that means that they can't connect not only to their own feelings, but they can't connect to themselves. I just read this incredible book called Heavy by Kesey Lehman, an American memoir, and it won the 2018 Book of the Year by the New York Times and NPR. And you know, it's, it's a bird's eye view into the story of a young black man. And when he is relating with his friends, the conversations are, yo man, you know, man up. Why are you crying? Instead of tell me more, how does that feel? What do you need from me? So we're not ever taught how to show up for ourselves. How can we show up for each other? And when I say we, I'm talking about men. Women uniquely are. Um, what I have found is that the communal ability to take your pain and bring it into a small group of women that you trust, your sisters, it's actually quite common practice. It's not as common practice amongst men. And that's why we see, according to the CDC, suicide rates 3.5 times higher in young men than in young women. Um, that's why we see depression and loneliness at all time highs for young men. I studied with Warren Farrell, who wrote The Boy Crisis, um, and there absolutely is a crisis happening in young men. And my highest hope is that we can see this as a human crisis, that if we don't address this, there will be devastating ramifications in the next decade or two. Yeah. I mean, there already are. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I don't know, does have to... Does the suicide rate have to be, you know, 80% of men are dying by suicide before like, oh, but we should change this. We should do something. Right. But yeah, no, it's horrible. And it is, I mean, you've hit on it. It's that the, the worst thing that a young man of growing a, a boy, a child can be told is that you're, you're not male. You're not who you are, right? You're, you're acting like them. You're running like a girl. You're crying like a girl, all these sort of things. And it deprive you before you even discover what masculinity is, means to you, which is ultimately what matters. But people are shaking that foundation of what it could mean. And you're, I'm not it. I don't even know what it means yet. And you're saying, I'm not it. Oh, crap. What do I, now what do I do? You know, I better shut down, right? I better be stoic. I better be emotionless. I better do whatever I can do to never be picked on again. Mm. And you know, I find that, that that's the root of, of the crisis, of the crisis of self-esteem, the crisis of resiliency, the crisis of guys not sharing how they feel. Yeah. Um, I've met many clients and friends who will tell me that their, their spouse is the first person that they've ever confessed how they feel about things. And they finally open up to someone and that their spouse can even be their best friend for a while. And then things happen, the relationship goes sour, there's a divorce, whatever it is. Now they've lost that. And they'll even say, despite being supported for years and years in that relationship, they're like, oh, but it, it hurt at the end. So now, nope, I tried that once. 
I'm like, yeah, but didn't it feel good for a long time? Like, <laughs> like who tries something once? It works most of the time. And it's like, nope, I gave that a shot. You know, it's just, oh, it's the, the lunk-headedness, <laughs> the stupidity, the, oh, I made my choice, I'm going to die by it uh, mentality of, of so many men. Just that, that's what disheartens me so much. Um, you know, it's knowing better. It's having lived experience of better, but still, no, it, it's safer to, to fall into the rut to fall into yeah. that oldest rut of no, um, uh, to be a guy, I better not feel, I better not show anyone that I can be hurt. Um, and yeah, it's just, I find it to be like one of the saddest things in the world. It's, it's a life half lived. Like yeah, what is the really. point of life if not love? Yeah. And that doesn't mean that it's always romantic love, but it means that it's just being able to be open and receptive to love. And so when people come to me and they say that, I say, okay, what's the payoff that you get? for sticking to this philosophy. And all of a sudden it's like very confronting because I think all of human psychology boils down to desire. You either desire to do something more or less. And depending on that, that'll dictate your actions. So your payoff for stubbornly, defensively protecting yourself from love is higher than the possibility of the other side. And, and that reframe set, tends to help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many guys will think, you know, I'm not afraid of nothing. Oh, except like feeling something. Oh yeah. It's like, cause retreating, not feeling, putting up that wall, uh, living with a mask uh, under lies, under illusions, checking all the boxes off. That's living from fear. Yeah. And you You can't uh, run away from yourself, right? That you can try. Yeah. (laughs) And that's why people are, but yeah, you, you, you lose. You, you, exactly. You lose you that can't battle. outrun the truth. Yeah. Because you're the only one who actually knows how devastating you're being to your own psyche. And your right. psyche isn't going to forget. Yeah. And that's that, that, that torment that can lead to anxiety, to depression, to loneliness. It's, it's all internal because the battle's inside. Totally. Right? It's no one else shitting on you. It's no one else trying to shut you down. It's you deciding that... That it's not worth it. Like you're so falsely deciding that you're so fragile mm-hmm. that you can't risk anything. And, and that's the biggest fucking risk there is. Totally. And the way that I've noticed that men process and I've processed in this way too, um, is that we retreat into the mud of the mind. There's a cave waiting for us. And if nobody sees how dark and messy it is, there's a safety in that. But the problem is that cave, that cave, is not a temporary dwelling. And because it's comfortable in the dark to not be seen, to not feel, uh, it becomes the new normal. And that's the really dangerous tipping point. And so people like you or people like me or close family members who are willing to sit in the cave of the mind beside that man are the ones that are bringing him food and sunshine and trying to pull him out and see there's a whole world out there this cave only feels safe because it's all that you've known. Yeah. Yeah. If, even things that feel bad, if it's all you've ever had, it's like, I, I, you know, to me, even suicidal thoughts, I could see that I'd become addicted to them. How do I deal with any discomfort? How do you deal with any negativity? Well, fuck this. I'm going to kill myself. Like it became just that automatic. That was my reaction. That was my, I'll take my ball and go home. Um, mm. And even if I didn't let, but it was just what I was used to. Like even, yeah. you know, if your favorite quilt 
is this food-covered, dog-pissed-on-disgusting thing, but it's still your favorite quilt. And it's disgusting and it smells, but it's still your favorite quilt because you're used to it, right? And it doesn't look good, smell good, feel good, and it can still be your favorite. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's where, you know, it takes that circle of friends or the coach or the underground dinner <laughs> to right. wake your mind up to that, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, other people have shed this cave and this quilt of muck, right? It's, you know, it why I first started talking openly about my um, suicide attempts is because when I was a kid, the only place I heard anyone mention suicide was in a mental hospital, which made me think that even just thinking it proved I was freaking crazy. Huh. But it is so much, we just, I, it's not even just the stigma around depression. We, we really, and I'm working on removing the stigma of guys feeling anything. Mm. A lot of guys won't even feel good. Yeah. You know, guys are allowed to feel joy and, and glee and dance just for the love of dance and all this kind of stuff. Like, no, you, a guy can be angry and okay. Like yeah. that's, you know, how are you? I'm pissed. How are you? Okay. Like that, that's, that, that's the range that too many guys allow themselves to be in. And there's just so much more to life. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't know what exists, it's easy to accept that as the bar for happiness. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen this because I've seen this with my students. When they start recognizing how much of life is out there to live, it's like a whole new human. Like they just blossom. And it's generation shifting work to confront the false narratives that life can only be two pieces of feelings. Um, So it's, it's just, to me, the greatest shame that we feed men is that if you want to be considered a man, you have to literally cut off your arm, your legs, your heart, your, you, you're left being a stump. And, uh, and then we glorify that. And so um, that's why I, I took this interview, because I want more than anything for men to not feel alone. Because that's, that's a slow death. And I'm so proud of you for, for taking all of the pain and making it mean something so that other kids don't feel like suicidal thoughts are a mental institution only. Yeah. No. And that's, and I mean, you found it in your grief too. Like pain can mean something there. It's cliche, but it's true. Like there is a gift in our shit. If you're willing to look and find it, like things don't just happen to you because you suck. Like, like life is not tilted against you unless you choose to see it that way over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And that victim mentality is so addictive because you never have to take responsibility for it. I used to do it all the time. And so what I've, what I found when I was teaching my other talk was the power of curiosity is a curiosity driven approach to life makes everything a surprise and a delight and a joy because there's never that all knowing it's all an exploration. So Uh, I say that there's four things that are going to happen no matter who you are and where you're from. Death, taxes, pain, and change. I can't do anything about death or taxes, but I can do something about pain and change. And the way that I see it is every time that a change happens, can I get really curious and think, huh, how is this change part of my higher evolution? And then every time that I experience a pain, get really curious and think, huh, how is this pain a professor in my life? And those two mindset shifts have been game changers. Yeah. Now, it sounds like you had 
a really well-grounded, expansive vision of, of masculinity, of what was mean to, to, to be a man as you were growing up, as you were a young girl. But is there anything that you were taught, either from your grandfather, father, or their French friends, anything that you were taught that did prove to be incorrect? Yeah, a lot of it. You know, they were coming from the Soviet Union. Um, and the communist regime, I did not see my dad cry my entire life. My grandparents, my grandpas did not show much emotion. You know, there was like three levels of emotion. Uh, there was really angry where like, you did not want to be in the room with them. There was pissed about something because inevitably life is hard. And, you know, there's this expression in, in Ukrainian, like, um, you must suffer for joy. Or there was like content, like there's nobody to yell at right now. Nothing's terrible, you know, and, and on some occasions I got to see joy and those were like, oh, the best moments. They were not nearly frequent enough. So I'd say like there were four emotions that I experienced between my father and my grandfathers. Um, and I didn't get to see a whole lot of men embodying their artistry or their creativity, um, except for dancing. That was really cool. And, and I think that also has unfortunately become bucketed as like a, a female thing or a feminine quality to be artistically expressive or write poetry. Um, and, and so I felt like that was just such a shame because we all need to express the things that are happening inside of us. And unfortunately, men get told that you can only channel that expression into a few buckets, one of them being athletics, uh, the other being academia. Um, but I think what I didn't learn from my background, the Soviet era men, was how men can communicate thoughtfully. I'm so impressed when I see it happening now amongst men, just conscious, loving, compassionate communication did not exist. If, if they were angry with you, it was silent treatment or worse, like really getting reamed out and yelled at. Um, and I just thought that's how men communicated. And my first boyfriend really emulated that. And it was a really emotionally unhealthy and abusive relationship at times. But because that's what I saw growing up, I thought that was normal. Um, so I think we emulate our parents. And that is why it's such an exciting time right now, because the next generation of fathers recognize that until they actually heal the wounds of their fathers, they won't be liberated from them. And they're willing to do the work. That's what I'm noticing. Like yeah. men today have had enough and they want their joy. They want their liberation. They want success and power in different forms. And they're listening to podcasts like yours. They're coming to work with people like you and me because they know that since this has never been really done before, it's going to take partnership and work and accountability to do it well. Awesome. <sighs> It, that communication might be at that thoughtful communication, but it, you know, what, what's one thing that you wish more men knew? One thing I wish more men knew about women or about themselves. You pick. Um, I wish men knew 
that they didn't have to always know. That it is safe to jump into the unknown. That it is not only safe, it is a requirement of their evolution, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, to embrace the unknown and run into it with open arms. Because the man you become on the other side is a man you will be deeply proud of. Cool. Yeah, I've, and it, it, it was a long, painful process for me to accept that change is pretty much the only constant and to actually run into change and like, oh, I'm afraid of that. All right, then that's what I need to do next. And, and yeah, take, take that, what, we, what I grew up believing were stop signs and just take them. Nope, that means actually go. Yeah, mm, so r- rush yes. into it. Cool. Yeah. All right, and since you brought it up, what do you wish men knew about women? I wish men knew that women more often than not want to be a bridge. They, they just can't read their minds. They, they want so much to know the inner workings of their mind. And if they could be allowed into the cave of the mind, they could actually support Um, but a lot of times women are just blocked, cut, put in the dark and feeling really helpless. And so I wish men knew that women were ready to show up as allies. Do, do women really want to know what's going on in a man's mind or would they rather understand what's in their heart or is it, you know, is it just a semantics? It depends. Yeah. It depends where he's living. So at what point is he in his mind or at what point is he in his heart will dictate that. But I'd say, you know, I hate making overarching generalizations, but more often than not, if men are in a state of chaos, it's in the mind Um, and women can help them usher them into their hearts if they've done the work, not all women, again, no overarching generalizations. Right. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) Cool. So find your globe trotting, you know, underground dinner hosting <laughs> version of femininity. <laughs> exactly. Um, Just trying to make bell hooks proud. <laughs> so is there anything you wish more women knew about men? Yes. I wish women knew how deeply sensitive men are. That there is no comment that goes unnoticed. I have sat in rooms of men dozens of times. I have spoken on conference stages and hosted one-on-ones. And the stories that come out of how devastating that one comment was to that man may have stayed with him for the rest of his life. Um, And so I wish women didn't believe in the false narrative of men's toughness and actually spoke to men with the same sensitivity that they would speak to their own best friends. If you wouldn't say it to your best friend, don't say it to him. Yeah. And I, I love what you said that not buying that false toughness. Cause I, I do think women read it. They, 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 everyone has feelings. Everyone has intuition, but women are more likely to trust, to be observant of their intuition. And they'll, they'll feel that there's this, you know, falseness, there's the mask on this man. And then the man insists it more. So they like, all right, fine. I'll believe you. And then it's like, no, don't, you know, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, they can only fight it for so long. Exactly. And, and lead with a question instead of a statement. If you want to understand something, 
don't make a blanket statement about it. Genuinely say, I noticed X. Is that how you're perceiving it too? Yeah. I'm curious, what's your take on it? That's it. All a man wants is to not feel once more boxed in to an unrealistic expectation. Cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Beautiful. Um, so you, you mentioned that you're, you're working in a book and all of your conversation with the men are leading up to this. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about how that's unfolding? Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of wild that it's, it's here because, you know, for three years, it's just been kind of this pipe dream. And then COVID hit and my career as a speaker is <laughs> indefinitely on pause. Although speaking virtually is really cool and creative, I, I miss the human connection element of, of being on stage in front of hundreds of people. And so I think we all had this moment when COVID hit, like if the world is ending, what is the dream that is dying to be born? And for me, it was the book. And so um, I took a book writing course with a phenomenal man named Stephen Kotler. And his editor and I really connected at the end. And so the book what it started off as has morphed multiple times. I thought it was going to be kind of like an eat, pray, love, you know, sharing the insights across every dinner. But then I realized that's really a book for me. That's more like a journal. When you're writing something, the highest hope is that it actually adds value. And so I started thinking if I were a man and I saw this book in a bookstore what problems would I want this book to solve? And so I, I kind of made a list of like all of the FAQs that I have ever received. And I made book chapters based off of that, answering those questions. And so the, the stories from the road are peppered in, um, but it's really become a book that is sharing my observations that have become my teachings uh, woven in with stories from the men's dinners and Uber conversations and, and conferences. Um, and so I'm tremendously proud of it because it's the most psychologically naked I've ever felt. It's also a book for women and men to reclaim the narrative of daddy abandonment issues. And that has been, you know, 13 years worth of work that is now, I feel like, in physical form being healed by writing. Um, so if anybody is experiencing any colossal pain, I cannot recommend enough the power of story and the power of voice to take everything that feels like mud in the mind and just put it on paper. That's been so healing just to see that it isn't black and white, that it is like a, a gorgeously complex organism. Beautiful. Yeah. You've done a lot of cool things and you already mentioned uh, being prideful of this, but this is something I like to ask a lot of men because they don't, especially today's men doesn't seem to stop and, and ask themselves this, but so what are you most proud of? <laughs> so pride connects me to ego. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. You, every, um, every, you're not going to get rid of that while you're here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think I'm most proud that I believed in myself enough to walk away from a very secure and successful life and jump into the unknown. And when the money ran out, I believed in myself enough to not go back to what was comfortable. I believed that 
I could create a life of meaning, shifting the world forward just a tiny dent, um, but doing it on my terms. So the thing I'm most proud of is I never gave up on myself. Some days I wake up and I have a delusional level of self-belief. And some days I wake up and I'm like, who do you think you are? Um, but I think that's healthy because it's human. Who do we think, who, who aren't we, right? I may be one of the first women to ever take this as a movement. And I hope the women that are listening realize they can do it too. I don't want to be one of the only women talking about men's work. Um, I don't want to be put on a pedestal. It's on all of us to help each other. Beautiful, beautiful. And, uh, you know, I'm someone that woke up with the opposite version of self-delusion, that you're just such a worthless piece of freaking shit. So to hear you, someone like, oh, I don't want to, like, <laughs> it's just, that cracks me up. So I love, I love, I love that that's, uh, you know, if that's the worst aspect of your life, if that's the bad day, like, you know, God bless you. Um, so, so Vika, what's the best way for people to learn more about you and find out what you're up to? Yes, the best way is to go on my website, vikatalks.com, V-I-K-A talks.com. Sign up for my newsletter. Um, it's a really exciting time to be a creative. And I'm reestablishing my relationship to social media right now. I'm doing two weeks off social, which is a project I launched for myself and 17 people have joined me in in really owning our time and our mind and our peace again. So um, I'm imagining that the future of how I'm going to interact with the world is going to be less on social and more in really thoughtful weekly episodes that are sent via email. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I'm so glad that our paths crossed. I, I, I can't wait for the pandemic to end so I can join an underground dinner somewhere. And I just uh, want to give you a lot of credit for not giving up and doing this work. And, you know, you have planted seeds in so many listeners, you won't even know who they are, but by you using your voice as a force of good, it's created a ripple effect and I'm touched to be part of that. And I hope that you continue to do this podcast for the rest of your life. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's only recently that I can even hold that thought as like, like, Oh, that that's possible. So when I started, I was like, my goal was to do three before I quit. That was the goal initially. That was it. So, uh, and I, I oh boy, I think you're like episode 205. I think that's where we're at. Yeah. I want to, yeah. I want to bring it back to you and ask you, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? Wow. It's, it's weird. So what, what pops up first is it's the things that I haven't done yet, but if mm. I have to decide looking back, yeah, it could be this, it could be real men feel like I was, I was thinking the other day, like I have, I have so many good close friends that I realize began as guests on a freaking podcast. Or I was a guest on their podcast, and I'm like, yeah, the, the, the podcasting community and the real midfield community has just been the, the gift I had no expectation of. Oh, that is beautiful. Wow. Okay, you're beautiful. totally motivating me to maybe start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, well, Vika talks, you already have it. Like, you've got the domain. That's the title. There you go. All right. <laughs> Cool. So again, Vika, thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for sharing a, a, a little bit of the, the splendor that you are. Um, 
for everyone listening, thanks for your time, your attention. Thanks for your emotions. Thanks for your pride. Thanks for your delusions of grandeur because it's way better than delusions that put you in that freaking cave. So get out of the cave. Enjoy life. Feel your feelings. There's always a better feeling on the other side of anyone that you would judge as negative. Um, hmm. Reach out to realmenfield.org for show notes. We're going to have links to every book mentioned, all the ways to interact with Vika and be ready for her to come out of her social media freeze. Uh, if you're looking for ways to meet more men, check out realmenfield.org slash gift. Get a PDF of all these different places, physical and virtual, for you to make more male friends. That allows you to put you on the newsletter, which just is this week two of the brand new Real Men Field newsletter. So you'll uh, stay up to date. You'll never miss an episode. Through it all, be good to yourself. Feel what's there and enjoy your freaking life, man. Bye. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Join the private Real Men Feel Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash realmenfeel. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover Real Men Feel.